Good afternoon and welcome to Ensuring Your Security Program Can Support the Industry's Increasing PHI Sharing Demands, a Health System CIO Media Inc. production sponsored by TauSite. Just a little housekeeping before we get started. My name is Anthony Guerra. I'm the Editor-in-Chief of Health System CIO and I'll be your moderator today. We're looking forward to your participation. You can send in your questions or comments at any time in the Q&A box and we'll take those later in the program. Just so you see how we're going to spend our time, first we're going to go about 40, 35, 40 minutes with our main panel discussion featuring Jackie Monson, SVP, Interim CIO, Chief Technology Risk Officer, CISO and Chief Privacy Officer with Sutter Health, Anahi Santiago, CISO with Christiana Care, and David Ting, CTO and Founder with TalSite. And then we'll have our Q&A. All right, let's jump right in. Lots of good stuff to talk about today. Um, Jackie, let's start with you. You want to give us an overview of your organization and your roles. I have to say roles. So, <laughs> would love to. Um, so I work at Sutter Health. I am currently serving as an interim CIO, the Chief Technology Risk Officer, CISO, and CPO. So accountable for all things technology, privacy, security, tech risk uh, for Sutter. Sutter is a large organization. We uh, have uh, close to 60,000 employees and uh, 24 hospitals and many, many clinical locations. Very good, Jackie. Thank you. Anahi? Hi. Um, good afternoon. Um, I feel lame with only one title. <laughs> um, so I, I'm the sister of Christiana Care. Christiana is the largest health system in Delaware. Um, we also have hospitals and facilities in New Jersey, Pennsylvania, and Maryland, um, and are the only level one trauma center between Philadelphia and Baltimore. Very good, and I thank you, David. Good morning, good afternoon. Um, I'm David Ting. I'm the CTO and founder of Tensite, a company I started uh, after I left Infobata in 2017, uh, recognizing that there are some interesting challenges in this information sharing age uh, around PHI. And I'm looking forward to having a great discussion with a fantastic panel. Um, I do feel like you, Anahi, that uh, I am shy of all those extra titles. <laughs> well, we'll, we'll, I'm sure we get some more. We'll get some more for you. All right, next, uh, first question, first main question. Jackie, we're going to start with you. Discuss the, the state of healthcare today as it pertains to the challenge of protecting and sharing data considering consumer expectations around data sharing, proliferation of cloud hosting, remote work, remote patient monitoring, data sharing regulatory requirements, that's what you have to do, regulatory penalties for information blocking is what you can't do, and then regulatory penalties for breaches is what you can't let happen. So. There's a lot of factors going on to make it sort of a very challenging situation for uh, CIOs and certainly people in charge of security at health systems. So your thoughts? Yeah, I think we've never had a more challenging environment that we're facing with all of the technology that we're leveraging, uh, the way that patients both expect and the regulators want us to share information with them in real time. And all in an era where, you know, originally when we contemplated security and technology, it didn't 
it didn't have all those factors. And so we're retrofitting all of our technology to uh, try to accommodate those needs. And that can obviously create a pretty challenging environment for us. And, you know, I think the biggest aspect of, you know, information blocking and finding the right balance for patients is, you know, when you have a patient who's in the ED, who's going to be delivered a cancer diagnosis, do you really want them to find out from, you know, My Health Online or their online portal before the physician has the ability to have that conversation? And I think that's one of the biggest challenges that we face in addition to having information everywhere. Uh, and not having the ability to fully protect it uh, without really robust asset management, but also just the patient perspective on, do we really want them to find that out sitting in the um, emergency room, waiting room before a physician even gets to them? And I think with information blocking, um, that's been very challenging because they will find out before that physician gets to them. And then how do you manage that for a patient, that very scary situation when you're not there to take care of them the way that you want to? Jackie, do you feel like that's something that the, the regulators missed, that nuance in there where there could have been some some um, wording that could have taken care of the situation you're concerned about? Yeah, I do. I think that, um, you know, their, their contemplation for the regulation was getting information to patients, patients owning that information, and not having the ability to have controls in place where in situations like the one I described, we would want. Um, there's no, uh, there's no exception for that. And there's lots of other exceptions, right? I mean, I could give you an example of physical security. So nurses, we generally don't have their last name on badges, just their first name for reasons of their own physical safety and security. And today with the information blocking rule, those patients are getting the full name of those nurses in addition to the clinical care team uh, available to them right away. And so there's safety concerns from you know, just the clinical staff perspective. And I, I personally don't think those things were contemplated when we pushed this rollout. It was really just focused on getting patient information in real time and having them, you know, get access to everything that they want, not necessarily all the nuances. And there's a lot more that I could tell you about just, you know, psych records, for example, where you, you wouldn't want them to get that information right away. And we just don't have the flexibility currently in the information blocking rules to be able to decide what makes sense um, to provide patients right away versus what makes sense to provide them a few days later when you don't have the, the situations like the cancer diagnosis in the ED. All right. Very good. So that's certainly one issue that we can discuss a little, in a little more detail is uh, there's concerns uh, about the information blocking rule and maybe some unintended consequences that perhaps will be remedied and perhaps not. I'm not sure. Um, Anahi, your thoughts? Uh, you know, staying with the, with the theme of information blocking and some of the things that I think were missed, um, I, um, I think about, you know, every every time we onboard technology, we go through a risk assessment, we look at the vendors, we look at the applications, we do a vulnerability assessments, penetration testing, app, app testing. Um, and, uh, and now we are essentially um, leaving the, all, all that work up to the patient to assess for their own app that they may want to bring in and use to get access to their medical records. And I personally feel like we have an ethical duty to still protect patients who are not information security and privacy professionals from, um, from themselves. And it's very hard to do that in this case. Um, and so, 
you know, I've, I've spent a lot of time discussing with our own leadership how we can sort of get in front of this um, so that there's a level of education to the patient such that they're not just grabbing whatever whatever is in the you know in the in the app store um, and bringing it in, believing that you know that the information is going to be protected the same way that we may protect it. Um, so, so that's certainly an area of concern, uh, you know, and, and there are lots of bullet points and lots to unpack. I think that the place where um, we're seeing the greatest challenge now is with our ability to deliver virtual care. And with all of our hospital at home initiatives, we're essentially um, sending patients home with a slew of medical devices that can either be connected to a network that we deliver for them or might be connected to their, their network and, and, to, and inevitably to the cloud where all of this data is being sent so that we can retrieve it. And at that point, we, we essentially lose the capabilities that we currently have around vulnerability management, long management visibility. Um, and so I, I, I'm seeing, you know, challenges in trying to figure out, okay, if one of these devices that is in a patient's home is now noted to have a critical vulnerability, how do we get it back? Mm. How do we get, how do we protect the patients um, and the devices um, in, in, in ways that we have traditionally done within our network? Um, and, and to me, those are, you know, the challenges that I see um, more and more as we really push, appropriately push the care outside the four walls of our hospital. A couple follow-ups there. Number one, you talk about providing some sort of further uh, layer of uh, comfort or, or vetting to apps that maybe, let's say, are in the Apple App Store. Do you envision a Christiana Care App Store where you have vetted certain apps and these are the ones that have our stamp as well, something like that? We've, we've, ha we've had those conversations. Um, uh, we, we've, we have not advanced that work um, to the point where I can say, yes, um, that, that's, that's what we plan to do. Um, but that is one of the ideas that we're mulling around, recognizing that that doesn't prevent patients from requesting something that isn't within right. what we have given the seal of approval. Um, but that certainly is one of the options that we've considered uh, as, as a hope of getting um, around some of the potential risky apps that patients might deliver to us. But you, as you mentioned, you would still have to deliver data to an app that was not in your curated store because otherwise you'd be guilty of information blocking. Technically, yes. Right, right, right. Uh, one other question is you mentioned um, the devices in the home that you're using for virtual care and then the need that if there was an issue to how do you get them back? And does, do you mean to physically get them back to apply some kind of patch? Potentially, yeah. yes. Right. Yes. So that's more complicated. I mean, it sounds like it shouldn't be too difficult, but I think what you're saying is it's a little more complicated operationally to actually get it. Exactly. Yeah. And, uh, you know, when we have devices that have vulnerabilities on our, net, our network, we know exactly where they are. We know how to get to them. We've got procedures in place. Now they're in somebody's home um, and we, you know, it may be the right version. It may be the wrong version. So now we're having to do like a whole level of mm -hmm. asset management beyond what our tools are capable for, because we just don't have the, the visibility, the physical visibility into the posture of those devices. 
Right. And you would think, if, as you sort of think it out, you imagine if this is a device that's necessary for their well-being or monitoring, then and you need to get it back. Well, you're going to need to ship them one first off to replace that one and then send me the <clears> one you're using back. It gets a little tricky and complicated, it sounds like. Um, David, let's bring you in here. Uh, your thoughts on it, what you've heard or any of the bullet points on the screen? No, I think this is a reflection of digitization of the industry. Information now is the key aspect of how you drive efficiency in, in healthcare. And as both Jackie and Nahi pointed out, it's data is moving everywhere. It, and that will generate efficiency and better care, but data is now everywhere. And without knowing where it's going, without knowing the context around how it's being used, without knowing the environment that it operates in, and also, even the locations where it ends up uh, is very hard to, to uh, secure, much less have a posture of saying that everything is compliant. I think in a, in a world like healthcare, as it gets more distributed, as the care delivery is more distributed all the way to the home, there is this explosion of devices. And there's an explosion in terms of where the data is being stored, where it's being housed, where it's being generated. Doctors working from home generate all kinds of new data. That all becomes the new problem in terms of securing PHI. Uh, and and uh, our premise is that you can't secure what you can't detect. You can't secure what you don't know. Uh, and, and in a lot of conversations with CIOs and CISOs, we always come back to, well, do you know where all this PHI has gone? And do you have visibility to how it's being used? And the answer is going to be, Inside my fire, uh, inside my firewall, I have a really good idea. But when it goes down to the vendors, when it gets down to the level of the home, when it gets pushed into a medical device or sourced from a medical device, I can't guarantee that confidentiality, integrity, and availability is always maintained. And and that's the core uh, of I think the new challenge in this information sharing age, uh, where you can't block uh, and you have to send it. Your, your doctors are receiving patient records, they're, they're getting consults, they're coming in every different format. It's not always through your EMR. Uh, and that to me is the new challenge of this new era. So David, two, 2017 is when you started TauSite, right? So you, you had sort of a vision of where the world was moving and what was going to happen. And you said, well, I can play a role in helping out from a security point of view, how I think see things playing out obviously as way before the pandemic and i i guess it's it's obvious that the pandemic super accelerated the vision you had and just took things where you thought they were going to go much much faster than than you had anticipated does that make Correct. sense that is absolutely what happened jackie and i were on the 20 the cybersecurity task force the uh presidential cybersecurity act uh created the task force that uh we both served on and the briefing in the uh, task force really pointed out that healthcare is a very different vertical than your other traditional financial services, energy, transportation. Um, data is distributed everywhere. It's a much more complex environment. You just can't apply the standard rules. So when I recognized that, and, and when I left Improvata, um, I started to think, you know, how do you how do you track all this stuff? How do you put enough eyeballs on it when in a day when there are insufficient uh, cybersecurity analysts uh, to keep track of all the concerns, all the risks, even to know where all your EPHI is. Uh, and with a back 
my background has always been in pattern recognition and machine vision. So we said, what if we could build uh, EPHI detection? What we what would it be? What would it mean if we had automated means to recognize when there's EPHI and start to build the context out and start to think about securing a system, not on, not only from the technical infrastructure perspective, but from the data layer out and really start to provide uh, a context around where's your, where's your EPHI, how much PII data is in there, how much, where is it, who's using it, what applications, how is it being secured, where is it moving to, and give you that visibility uh, in a holistic manner. All right, very good, very good. Um, well, I'd like to hear people talk about this. I think this is uh, the elephant, right? So, um, Anahi, let's start with you. How difficult is it to establish an accurate inventory of devices and data? Uh, well, I just shared how it's going to about to get a whole lot more difficult. Um, I, you know, we we've been able to, uh, you know, through through our asset management technologies as well as our medical device and IoT technology been able to capture a pretty accurate uh, list of um, inventory for our devices, whether it's medical devices, PCs, laptops, servers, what have you. Um, but as I share, where it's starting to get particularly tricky is when we're now sending all these devices to a patient's home and, um, and the loss of visibility that can occur when those devices leave the four walls. Um, yet, our requirement to still maintain some level of asset management. And even more importantly, um, because we need to understand not only what kind of device, but the version that the device is utilizing, any third parties that might be running on those devices. So uh, the tools that we, you know, we spent so much time and effort um, deploying throughout our organization are no longer gonna be effective when those devices go, go outside the four walls. Right, very good. And uh, Jackie? I think this is probably one of the biggest challenges that we face as security and privacy practitioners is having an accurate inventory constantly of your assets because you can you can start, you can scan, you can think you have a good list and then stuff comes up. And I'm talking even just within the firewalls of the organization because of the way that we sort of grew up and, you know, depending on technology, not depending on technology and just the way that we manage assets. I mean, it's not uncommon to still find um, biomed devices sitting in a closet and so you might know that we own it and we have it, but we don't know where it is. And so I think it's a constant challenge for any healthcare organization. And I think, you know, Sutter and others are privileged in the sense that uh, we can spend the money on the technology for asset management to help protect our assets. Not everybody is fortunate enough, uh, particularly small, medium providers. Okay. It's really expensive. And so finding ways to make sure those devices and data are secure and have an accurate inventory, I think is gonna be a constant challenge that we manage going into the future. And I think just thinking through the, you know, what happens when they go to the patient's home, when they go to the employee's home, you know, where all of this expands, and then what is our 
actual obligation when it's in the patient's hands versus when it's in our environment, I think is going to be an area that we all focus on because we don't have full control over what that patient does with the device. We can educate them. We can try to put in as many security controls as, as we can, but at the end of the day, that patient still has that device and they still have most of the control over it. And I don't think um, in healthcare, we've really solved a lot of those problems and and both educating the patients on what that means from a cyber standpoint and what risk that could mean to them. Uh, You know, I think there's some groups of people that might be sensitive to that, but most patients don't think about when they get sent home with a, you know, heart monitor for three weeks and they've got data with a cell phone and data going to that device manufacturer and then going back to Sutter in the cloud uh, so that the cardiologist can read it and look at it. They're not thinking about that. They're just thinking about the device. Um, You know, whereas we are thinking about the security of, okay, what happens when it's the patient is wearing it and something, um, something happens, there's a cyber attack, et cetera. And I think the vendor piece of it really complicates it because if we just think about that heart monitor, the, the cell phone and the actual device is owned by the device manufacturer and we're deploying the service to monitor the patient, they're getting the data and then the data is feeding back to us. Um, So we're so interconnected in just that example um, between the patient and us that I think it's a challenging space to identify who's actually accountable for securing those assets and how do we inform the patient of how, what they do and how that matters to the security of the devices and the data that's feeding in and out of it. So there's certain things, Jackie, that the, the patient can do and shouldn't do in order to not uh, make the chance of a cyber incident more likely. There's ways they need to behave with that. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. Very good. David? I, I think uh, the challenges that you brought up, Jackie, are exactly the ones that uh, is going to happen as we see more and more of these personal devices um, being brought into the home, uh, even doctors working at home. On their own machine, they they also present a, a new surface area for for attack because they're dealing with they're connected into your system, they're connected into the EMR. Um, just knowing what goes on at the edge uh, is the challenge. Uh, one of the things that we did um, in the in the Tau site design is we built a software IoT device that basically can be deployed at the edge just to give you the visibility uh, into your device the patching, the, the kinds of apps that are running, uh, as well as any ETHI data that, that you might have on it, simply because that is the only way uh, you can actually gain visibility to what goes on. And I think uh, that model of having a holistic view inside and outside the hospital, having visibility to all the concerns around um, who's using my PHI, where's my data being generated, where's it being sourced, where is it being synced to? What's the context around its use? Uh, having that uh, situational awareness is, is what is going to be needed uh, as we move into this more distributed uh, care delivery where you, you have downstream vendors, you have downstream devices that are brought into the home, you, you have people who are working remotely, all these things. So much more of it occurs um, outside the traditional context of what goes on inside the firewall, inside the organizational boundaries, uh, right? So the cloud is a huge benefit in terms of being able to create connectivity 
outside of your organization, and, but tracking it is, is much harder, right? And, and that's what um, we believe is the, is the challenge that's gonna face us over the next five years. And, and like you said, Anthony, the pandemic really drove home the need um, for, for better security, especially at the smaller hospitals. Uh, interesting side story, my two, pra two doctor pra dental practice that I go to during COVID, the first thing he asks me when he opens up his doors, he said, do you know anything about cybersecurity? And I said, just a little. And he said, <laughs> well, um, he said, why would they, he said, why would they attack my two doc practice and hold it ransom during, you know, he said, I come back, all my screens are locked up and they wanted Bitcoin. So he said, I said, because they're working just as hard as we are working from home. Uh, he ended up having to pay to unlock his records. So it's a problem. David, uh, for organizations that don't have something like site, how do you think they're managing this challenge right now? You know, usually when we talk about someone not having a, a specific application for a problem, everyone says they're using Excel. <laughs> so, um, but how are they doing it? How are they doing it? And, and I mean, what are the concerns there with, think, with doing I, it more manually? I think it's exactly that. They use multiple tools. They try to integrate the data through spreadsheets or a SIM, a security information event manager. Um, and they try to follow the, the best practices around securing the technical infrastructure. It's the it's build more moats around your castle. But what you really want to do is to say, ah, what am I protecting in my moat? Where's my real, where's the core assets in my infrastructure, which is patient records. And patient records, unfortunately, like the castle and the moat, the crown jewels are moving in and out of those drawbridges all the time. And, and you, if you don't have visibility to that, you can only hope that your moats are good at defending what, what can attack you from the outside. It's not giving you visibility when those crown jewels leave the castle. So it's a lot of handwork. Yeah. Okay. Very good. Um, we talked about, uh, let's talk about balancing. <laughs> let's talk about balancing security and usability. Um, and let's get some thoughts on that. Um, Jackie, let's start with you. Um, do you find that a challenge? I mean, is it, is it, there's so many things you have to do from a regulatory point of view. Uh, there's things you can't do. There's things you have to do. How are you finding balancing security and usability? Yeah, I I would say the the regulatory space isn't you know other than information blocking isn't really hasn't really been a barrier. I think the more important thing is you're looking at the holistic view of how how do you protect patients, how do you protect data, and how do you protect the organization. And that's always a constant challenge, right? Particularly when you're talking about patients. Um, so a few years ago, you know, HHS said that uh, for medical records that patients could tell us how they want uh, to get those records via USB or paper, however they want. And um, we have to give them an unencrypted USB if they ask for it. And I don't know a patient who's asked for an encrypted USB because they, again, don't know what that means. So I think there's going to be, there's always challenges with that, both from, um, you know, the individuals within the organization, as well as patients who just say, oh, we don't need the security. 
Why would we need that? Uh, why would we want to put multi-factor authentication? If we send them an encrypted email, they want us to send it decrypted. And there's this constant flow because I think personally, and it's a lack of understanding of why it's important and um, what the security co- controls actually do to, to help them until there's an issue. I think then when there's an issue, they come back and say, well, why weren't you doing these things? Um, So I think that's the ebb and flow and dialogue that I get into. And with all the hats that I wear, I see it, the whole big picture of it from the patient to the technology aspect of it. And I think it's going to be a constant challenge that we face as we educate. And we have to focus on the safety part um, because at the end of the day, if we're not protecting our patients, if they're doing things that are implicating their own data, that's a safety issue. And, you know, my fear, particularly with COVID and the COVID vaccine data, where we kind of removed all of the security aspects Mm -hmm. of how we were collecting that data and where it was sending is I think anybody who got vaccinated and anybody who had COVID, uh, all of that data is everywhere in the U S and it's available to anybody because of the lack of security controls around it. And we might not see the implications of that today, but we're gonna see the implications of it in the next couple of years where we're gonna you know, see identity theft and potentially cyber attackers using that to their advantage to know enough to authenticate individuals. And as the attack vector just gets more sophisticated, they're gonna to continue to leverage those things to their advantage to, to take advantage of. Anahi? Yes, um, you know, I, I, you know, this. I, I think this is one of the most important things that we, as security and privacy professionals, have to do on a daily basis, and it's really try and find the balance between what is enough security um, and what is important for clinical and care delivery. And um, and I think those of us that have been successful, have been able to gain the trust of the organization um, enough to get a seat at the table at the very beginning of of the design of some of the organizational strategic initiatives um, and have been able to demonstrate to the leadership that if we get involved early enough, we can help to build security from within without affecting the value that a particular initiative or technology um, can provide. And, and I'm, I'm finding that even more challenging um, in the last few years where there have been a lot of startup companies that we've looked at that deliver really high clinical value and um, to the point where it's, it's almost impossible to um, walk away from sourcing them. Yet, they have focused on clinical value, which is why they've done it so well, and haven't really particularly paid attention to, this, to, to the maturity of their cybersecurity program. And so at times I felt like a virtual CISO where I've spent so much time educating the and, and working with these startups to get them to increase the level of maturity to a point where we feel that the risks are manageable. Yet, I don't think that that is going to be sustainable Mm. um, because the pace um, has not slowed down. The volume of these vendors continues to increase and the number of me in my organization is exponentially growing in the way that, um, you know, these areas of need are. But, um, but But at the core of all of this 
is making sure that we're being really good partners with our business and clinical leaders so that they are educated on what risk management really is and, um, and so that they truly are partners with us so that together we are achieving that balance around clinical value without um, consu consuming too, too many risks, which might lead to unacceptable levels. So Anahi, you have conversations with the, the business, so to speak, with the clinical leaders who have found this beautiful tool and they love it. And they say, this is going to help us so much take care of our patients. We want this. And it it gets to security and you go, this thing is a mess. This is not good enough. And you say, all right, I'm going to put in some time. I'm going to work with this vendor because they think this is great. So I'm going to work with this vendor to get them up to speed. Um, do you then have the business saying, where is it? Where is it? Where is it? What's the holdup? And that's sort of a dynamic you have to work through? Um, in some instances, it's like that. In some instances, we may say, okay, let's pilot this device and see if it really does achieve um, the right level of clinical delivery. And let's limit the number of patients or number of data points that we will be sharing with them while we work with them to increase their maturity. Um, a lot of this is, you know, our contractual, you know, a lot of this doesn't happen overnight. Mm. So it begins, you know, it always begins with a risk assessment. Then it begins, then, you know, then, then a conversation ensues. And then we come to agreement on a path forward, both um, the business or clinical side, as well as the vendor. And it turns into a contract and then it turns into multiple follow-up um, meetings to ensure that the vendors who have now contractually agreed to achieve X, Y, and Z are meeting those requirements. Um, so it can look different depending on the, the type of device, the type of data, level of risk, um, but, it, but it's, it's an exponential amount of work. Um, yeah. But, yeah. but we can't always just say this device is, has no security, so we can't use it. Like that, it, you know, that, that wouldn't win many, um, many uh, friendships and certainly wouldn't get that seat at the table from the very beginning if we're constantly just putting up barriers. Right. Right. David, your thoughts? Oh, um, I think these points have been great in terms of integrating security into the clinical workflow. The, the balance is really hard one to establish. Uh, my brother happens to be an anesthesiologist who uh, while he's in the OR, is, is extremely demanding that there be no controls whatsoever that would stop him. He basically says in the, in the critical time to, to um, determine whether he has to do something, he doesn't want IT to have any policies that can slow him down, which is probably justifiable. I've talked to other doctors who said, I, if I get blocked doing something in my workflow, I'll figure out ways to get around it. Half the battle, I think, is understanding what are those clinical workflows that your clinicians are engaged in that, that they need in their workflow. Uh, it's not uncommon for them to say, if I can't copy the text, I'll capture a screen and send mm -hmm. the screenshot. If mm -hmm. I can't use a screen capture, I'll take a photo and I'll e email it with my own uh, tool. Now, my email uh, on my phone, almost every system... Uh, for security, the, the controls there are to limit what can be done, which is diametrically opposed to what a clinician wants to do, which is I want to get as much information to 
to my fellow colleagues for their expertise and or to import data from other people because I serve as a, as a consultant for them. So free, free flow of information, but in a compliant manner is really critical. We have had people who uh, email information to their own personal email to get it out of the system to get around the controls. We have had people bring in applications because they happen to have admin level privileges so they can do drive-by installs. Uh, these are the things that if IT knew about them and could have visibility, that's when you have the conversations to say, you know, what is it that you really need to do? Uh, and so to me, the, the intersection between security and clinical workflow and, and seeing that visibility and seeing what happens to it is the basis for starting the conversation around how do we help you become more efficient? Uh, researchers are another area we hear, uh, it's a constantly tension between that and the IT team where they will bring in their data, they will bring in patient data from other locations, store it on their machine and do whatever they need to do to get their projects done uh, to the detriment of, gee, these are, these are patient records from that are not de-identified. And how do how are you securing it? Well, it's the it's the researchers uh, purview to if the researchers are responsible at that point, but the IT team has no visibility again. So to me, it's all about gaining visibility uh, and understanding what's actually being done. That's the basis for how you start to make these policy decisions and these clinical uh, conversations. All right, very good. We're going to go to my favorite feature, ask a co-panelist. Uh, David, I'm going to start with you. Do you have a question for one or both of your co-panelists? Oh, I can start with anywhere. Uh, I think the question that we've always been asked is, uh, who cares about the security around the patient uh, records when it leaves, when it's inside the hospital and when it's outside the hospital? And, and Jackie, you and I have talked about this, um, but somebody has to be responsible and somebody has to be um making sure in a, that uh, all the regular regulations are met and that the business um, continues. So Jackie or Anaki, please feel free to chime in. So I look at this from a, what I call the three lines of defense model, which is operations is a first line of defense. Privacy security is a second line of defense. Internal audit is the third. And so when I'm so I believe, and this is what we message at Sutter, is that everybody's accountable for privacy and security um, and that it is their problem um, that when the patient leaves, making sure that things are safe and secure as it is on-prem. And it's a trust. It's part of the patient trust. It's part of the promise to them. If we're not keeping their information safe, we're not taking good care of our patients. And so that's the perspective and lens that we look at it from. And it's not always perfect. There's lots of dialogue that happens, um, you know, around that space. But I think um, having that premise is important because there's not enough of me or my team to take accountability for, you know, even regulatory compliance across the system. And frankly, regardless of how good the policies are, the procedures, the assessments, the program, if you don't have everybody thinking in that mindset, you'll never actually protect a patient um, from issues. And I think recently we've actually started um, pulling in, you know, so to your example of your, um, your brother, who's a, a surgeon or an anesthesiologist, and he doesn't want any technology. 
we've actually started doing um, simulations with our clinicians where a cyber attack actually happens while they're in the uh, operating room. It changes the landscape and it changes their view of things when suddenly they have to make decisions, not just based on what's best for the patient, but what systems they need available to actually provide good care to that patient and how do they manage that? And, you know, we, we work on the premises of that case, that very unfortunate case in Alabama where the patient died, uh, the baby died. And part of it was because the, they thought it was an uncomplicated birth and that they weren't going to need all the technology that wasn't available because of the cyber issue. Hmm. When in reality, it became a complicated birth and they needed that technology to care for the patient. So that's not something that I can run in and be a part of, right? Because it's happening at the time when they're taking care of the patient. And so that has to be part of the conversation that you're dialoguing with when you're dialoguing with clinical leaders is that there's going to, there could be a situation from a cyber standpoint where they're going to be in the driver's seat to make a decision on what's best for a patient and it could implicate their safety. Anahi? Yeah, I mean, I, I, Jackie touched on on all uh, all of the important points. Uh, we we take the same approach, right? We we say privacy and security is everyone's responsibility, and um, and you know, cybersecurity is not a technology issue. It really is a patient safety issue, um, in, in in a myriad of ways, uh, right? If the technology is not available, we may not be able to care for the patients. In in our scenario, we are the only level one trauma center between Philadelphia and Baltimore. If we have to turn patients away who are in ambulances, they're gonna have to drive potentially 30 miles to get to another level one trauma center, either you know, most likely in the city. Uh, that's, that's, that's dangerous um, and, it, you know, and it goes against the core of everything that we do every day. And our clinicians, our caregivers understand um, that cybersecurity is a patient safety issue. And that's, that's a space they live in all the time. So for us to be able to connect to patient safety makes it very real for them. And we do, do the same thing. We do, um, uh, once a year, we do a, a tabletop drill where we bring cardboard patients and we walk them through um, the scenarios because, uh, you know, as IT professionals, we do disaster recovery based on the application that um, we're testing. But our caregivers function across multiple systems across uh, and patients across multiple de departments that all use that may use some level of disparate systems. And so every time we run these exercises, we learn of an area that would be a real challenge should those systems not be available. Um, and so you know, through those exercises, through conversations and education, I think everybody really um, at least hears, they might not always understand, but they at least hear that uh, cybersecurity is, it's, it's a patient issue, patient safety. Very good. Um, Anahi, do you have a question for one or both of your co-panelists? So uh, Jackie, I, you know, as a former privacy and uh, CISO at my former organization, um, I, I find it refreshing not to have those two hats in some ways. Uh, and luckily, because I have a great relationship with our chief privacy officer, but also recognize the economies of scale um, that having both roles um, provided. So I'm, I'm curious as to whether you, you find that 
having them together is, is beneficial or whether it's still to some degree an overwhelming amount of work. So it's, I actually see it as they go hand in hand, kind of like a, a marriage um, in the sense that I don't think you can have one without the other. I think in order to have privacy, you have to have security of systems, security of things. And so I can't see it any other way, frankly. And we've been on this journey for uh, nine and a half years now of building out a combo of the two teams. And so we have a lot of folks that wear dual hats and dual titles. And I think in some areas, it doesn't make sense. Like for example, in cybersecurity, but they always pull in the privacy person because anytime we have a cyber issue, it's going to be a potential of a breach. So mm-hmm. having that deep connectivity straight out of the gate is helpful in that evaluation of how we make our decisions about what is next steps. And then I think another area is third-party risk management um, where, you know, privacy would do one assessment, security would do the next assessment, and sometimes they would marry the results and sometimes they wouldn't. We look at the holistic of what is what is the privacy aspect of it because it's going to impact what security controls we might need to put in place and evaluate in that way. So I can't imagine it being any different than combining it. And certainly we have privacy experts, we have security experts, and then we have groups that do both. And uh, it works really well in getting a holistic picture of what is the actual risk that we're facing, what controls do we need to put in place, and how do we manage the risk surrounding both of these areas for the organization. Very good. All right, Jackie, do you have a question for one or both of your co-panelists? Yeah, uh, the, I, I thought it was really interesting, the idea of endorsement of applications or apps in the app store for patients. And I'm just curious, you know, sort of thinking down that road, if that's the road, you know, organizations in healthcare go down for, you know, validation of how we control the external environment and how we help our patients from a security standpoint, what do we think the liability implications would be if, for example, we endorse an app from a security standpoint and we end up with a breach? Anahi? That's a great question. Um, we have not, so, so again, that's one of the things that is under consideration, right, is, a, you know, to, 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 to what degree um, do we want to go down this path and exactly that? What would our liability be if the patient either misuses the, the app okay. or the app has a breach? We don't have an answer, um, but it's certainly, it's, it's certainly something that any organization that's going to go down this path will have to tackle. David, any thoughts there? I think that's one for the lawyers to deal with. I, I could see that um, that's going to stifle a lot of app development if they app developers if they feel they they will become liable for consequential damages if they become part of a store and they didn't secure every little gap in their in their app. But it also um, raising that raises the specter of gee, have you done a good enough job of securing it? And Anahi, that your point of working with these startups um, who, for, who focus more on functional needs rather than security. Security is always an overlay uh, for most people when they build software. As, as, a, as an engineer, we, we focus first on, gee, how do we build the capabilities and then focus on the security? You have to have that um, software lifecycle, uh, development lifecycle that focuses on how do you put in security? What are your critical needs way before you build all the functionality, but unfortunately that is not the the reality for most companies. And 
um, that raises the specter that even if they have been vetted, uh, they will have hidden hidden problems that will come out later on. So I would leave it to the lawyers uh, to figure out who's going to be liable. Um, I have a question for both panelists. How do clinicians feel about their personal liability if they're working as a consultant um, and they are responsible, they deal with their patient data and they um, handle it? Uh, they may move your patient data into their own system uh, because they're a consultant. Um, what does the edge of liability occur in that scenario? I think it's becoming a more uh, bigger concern as we move forward because the, for example, the state licensing boards or the medical practice boards are asking for cyber insurance. They're asking mm -hmm. for questions around breaches and they're actually disciplining physicians who are implicated by issues that involve cyber. So I think the stakes have gotten higher for them than previously. So I, I get a lot of dialogue actually from clinicians in this space who are worried about you know how do we protect ourselves? What do we need to do besides cyber insurance? And I think it's a huge evolving area that uh, is going to have to continue to be, especially when cyber insurance becomes really challenging to get, frankly. Um, I think it's gonna be a, uh, an area that we're gonna have to continue to have on our radar and support them the best that we can. Anahi, anything you want to jump in there? Uh, no, no. I think the, the 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 cyber insurance is going to make things very complicated because I I don't foresee, based on the trends that we're seeing, that some of these physicians are going to be able to even obtain cyber liability insurance. Yeah. Very good. All right. Um, we're just going to go with some last thoughts at this point. Um, and I would like to. Uh, sort of frame it, your best advice to someone uh, at a comparable sized uh, organization, that would be for Jackie and Anahi, uh, as a, you're framing up your answers, your best advice to someone at a comparable sized organization that um, is concerned about the issues that we've talked about today, what's your best advice for them? Uh, Anahi, let's start with you. Uh, uh, you know, uh, listen to everything that we just shared. Yeah. Um, I, I would say uh, you're not alone. Uh, we are all dealing with with these challenges, um, and they're going to become more and more complicated. So rely on your peers, rely on organizations like um, the HISAC or the Healthcare Coordinating Council. Um, use them as resources to be able to glean not only what others are doing, but also um, what you know what the industry is trying to contribute into healthcare cybersecurity. Uh, because there are a lot of resources out there. We we don't have to invent the wheel on our own. Yeah, Jackie, it sounds like it's like everything else. It's a risk management game where you're doing your best to manage the risk. You're not going to have it buttoned up perfectly. It's never going to be 100%. Absolutely. You know, it's all about patient safety and managing managing the risk. And, I, you know, I think you have to do the best that you can. I know a lot of organizations aren't interested in asset management and knowing where all of your data is. But at this point and in, in this place in the game with the cybersecurity landscape, that absolutely has to be a priority. And I think if you make it a patient safety issue and make it about risk management surrounding that, you'll get the attention that you need from leadership to help invest in this area because it's not inexpensive to even just do asset management discovery. David, we'll give you the last word. I think, you know, the 405D committee 
the follow-on to the 405C and the health information, health infrastructure, cyber practices um, guidelines are, are an excellent starting point in terms of focusing on what, what are the things that are important for small, medium, and large uh, organizations. I, unlike Anahi and Jackie, I'm not the practitioner, I'm the technologist, uh, but those guidelines go right back to the fundamentals of the cybersecurity framework and what are the underlying principles that you need to adhere to. And, and in healthcare, it's gotta be around patient safety and the data security uh, and knowing what happens um, all over the infrastructure around care delivery and uh, making sure that, you know, as much as you like to say, I have policies, but always make sure you have a means to verify it uh, because not only will your auditors be asking for that, but also your cyber insurance companies as has been pointed out, they're going to be much more uh, interested in making sure that you actually do what you say you do. But it's a challenging space. And, and like both our other panelists have said, it's going to get increasingly more difficult uh, because the stakes are higher, the attackers are getting more sophisticated. Um, I was just reviewing some stuff on, on the 2017, 2016 attack on, um, with the WannaCry or the NotPetya and how it took down 60 hospitals in the NHS in with just a minor tweak of some um, cybersecurity attack tools. Mm -hmm. It's just incredible in how uh, large com organizations the cost of the Merck breach is a $1.3 billion to the insurers. The follow-on to that is they're not going to be that foolish about saying, we will just, we will just insure you for loss of uh, the uh, business, business losses or uh, the cost to rebuild your system. They're going to be basically saying, uh, we're going to be very careful how we draft our uh, underwriting policies for, for cyber insurance. Yeah, and you're going to pay. You're going to pay exactly. big time, even for the insurance, if you're lucky enough to get it. Yeah. Great, great discussion today. Regarding continuing education, you could use the final slide in this deck. You'll receive an email when the on-demand recording is ready for viewing. If you want to sponsor an event with us, you can reach out to Nancy Wilcox from our team and go to our website to register for upcoming events. With that, I want to thank our tremendous panel, Jackie Monson and Ahi Santiago, and David Ting, I want to thank TauSite for sponsoring, making the event possible, and you, our attendees, for coming to our webinars. And with that, everybody have a wonderful day. Thank you. Thank you.